Welcome to Pediatric Meltdown, the podcast about children's mental health and emotional well-being. I'm Dr. Leah Gugino, a primary care pediatrician, and I created this podcast for the pediatric medical community and anyone who cares about children's behavioral health. Pediatric Meltdown offers thoughtful conversations featuring experts from the field. Learn practical strategies from the best and become a savvier clinician. Listeners, I am so excited today to bring you a guest who is a well-known celebrity in medical podcasting and will really provide us some great insights into social media, kind of the ins and outs. So I want to welcome Dr. David Hill. Dr. Hill is the author of Dad to Dad, Parenting Like a Pro, and is also a co-author with Dr. Jan Blackstone of Co-Parenting Through Separation and Divorce, Putting Your Children First. He is Associate Medical Editor of Caring for Your Baby and Young Child, Birth to Age 5, and co-hosts the AAP's Pediatrics On-Call podcast with Dr. Joanna parga Belenke. He serves as an Associate Medical Editor of Patient Information for the AAP Pediatric Care Online. He is an Adjunct Assistant Professor of Pediatrics at the UNC School of Medicine and practices hospital pediatrics at Goldsboro Pediatrics in Wayne County, North Carolina. He lives in Wilmington, North Carolina with his wife, a pediatric PA, and between them they have five children ages 16 to 22. You are in for a treat, so strap on your seatbelt and let's take a ride. Good morning, David. So nice that you could join me. I so appreciate your time. I know you are an uber busy guy. So um, I appreciate you being here today. Oh, thank you so much. You know, driving Uber is one of the only things I'm not doing right now. I might pick that up. Oh, funny. (laughs) Yeah. Well, maybe, maybe that would be a good part-time gig. So um, I just wanted to hear a little bit about you. I was able to do a little bit of a Google search on you and you have such a fun background in broadcasting, and now you're doing the AAP Pediatrics on Call podcast. So how did all that happen? Well, well, you know, this is really funny because my youngest son, my 16-year-old, Julian, texted me when I was at the hospital on Monday, and he said, Dad, I need tips right now. They're going to put me on morning announcements for the next two days. The regular person was was not there, and he's class president, so they turned to him and That's how I started. In eighth grade, I was the morning announcements guy. And uh, once I got a hold of that microphone, I was like, I like these, right? (laughs) So uh, I was also always interested in writing and journalism. Uh, I sort of kept that as one of the things that I was doing through, through high school, et cetera. And I had this dream when I was in residency. Actually, it started before residency, but I wasn't able to make it happen of being one of those commentators on national public radio, all things considered morning edition. Uh, and they used to be like, used to be at the top of every hour. There was a commentator. They don't do that anymore. It's much rarer to hear them. But at the time that was like, you know, the bumper on the show, I was like, man, I would love to like get on the air and do those deep thoughts and stuff. And when I got to uh, UNC for my med pizza residency, I started listening to WUNC and I realized, wait a second, we've got local commentators. We've got people who talk about things in the triangle area. And I wonder if I could be one of those. So I applied to the station, sent them some samples and they're like, yeah, let's record. And they really, they taught me how to 
talk on the radio, which is not the same way that you talk to people in real life. Uh, and uh, I got, finally, I got my dream. I recorded a, a total of seven commentaries over several years for National Public Radio. And I was like, man, I'm living the dream. And uh, that did that a little bit when I moved here to Wilmington as well, moved to, to humor commentary because I was a huge David Sedaris fan. I'm like, I want to try that. Oh, the best. I, I'm no David Sedaris still, by the way, but I have met him and he's absolutely delightful. So then finally, there was really an open casting call within the AAP for uh, podcasters as they came up with this project. I was like, man, I've got to submit and recorded a sample with a good friend of mine here in Wilmington, Dr. Khadija Tribier-Reed. And you have heard her because we've been using her to, to do some essays, some commentaries on the podcast herself. And so uh, she's also just a spectacular communicator. And they paired me with somebody that I did not know, but now know extraordinarily well, Dr. Joanna parga Belenki. And um, what's funny for us is early on, we, we did like a sample podcast and then sent it around uh, the AAP, some, some people to get some feedback. And they said, I just don't know if David and Joanna have chemistry. They don't sound really comfortable with each other. And uh, since then, we like call each other for for like tips and life advice. She's a neonatology professor at CHOP, and I, you know, do twenty four hour hospital shifts and in a newborn nursery, we get a, a level two nursery. And when I've got a a premature infant or somebody who's having a tough time, I first thing I do is text Joanna. I'm like, help! I can't oxygenate this baby. What do I do? Uh, so at this point. When we when we get a guest on, when we first get on, uh, our producer Ann Johnson often has to like stop us from just going on and on with each other. Like, there's a guest. You guys probably ought to, you know, record a podcast here. <laughs> so it's been, you know, just magnificent to you know make a new friend, someone that I consider a really close friend now through this process. And then otherwise, it's just been you know, this process of fanboying and fangirling over people that we admire so much. And, you know, they say, hey, we can interview Paul off. And we're like, ah, really? Paul, we get to talk about like movie stars. <laughs> it, it Totally, totally. I mean, many yeah. of the people in the Academy that we just revere get to come on and we get to talk to them. And uh, it's just extraordinary. It's living another kind of dream right now. So it has been just an amazing experience and privilege. I think we were both lucky enough to interview Dr. Lee Beers. So yes, I yes. crossed paths with her being on the board and I called her one day and said, hey, Lee, would you be willing? And, you know, my podcast has way less followers than yours. And she was so gracious. And oh, it was, she's fantastic. And it was such she's a good conversation. Delightful. So whoever thought you guys didn't have chemistry on the podcast was way wrong because it's so fun. And, well, uh, and your guests are good and and it's just it's very engaging i do not know how you then have time to actually be a pediatrician i, I do it from the uber actually <laughs> just perfect people get in with a child and i just examine them at the stoplight <laughs> and uh no, no it's uh i've got i've got a wonderful position with former aap president david taylor in goldsboro uh north carolina doing hospital work for that practice and it's uh it can be very intense while i'm there yeah but uh when i'm not there i'm not there so uh you know we got time for this 
There you go. I can imagine you walking in and say, hey, boys and girls, good morning. How are you? <laughs> I absolutely do not do that. <laughs> the, the radio voice, you know, says, hi, I'm Dr. David Hill, and I'm going to be your pediatrician today. Right. Tell me, how are you feeling? No, I don't do that. It's <laughs> yes, it's your it's your alter, alter ego. Well, listen, um, the thing we were going to kind of dive into today is talking about social media and um, what a better person to pick, because this is your gig. So um, you and I talked before, and, you know, I think when we think about social media and kids, we think about all the negative stuff, cyberbullying sure. and sexting and gaming and all those things that you know, we worry about, but you brought up, and I think it's a really important point that there are so many positives that we need to keep that in mind too. And I think particularly right now, you know, doing this, um, Zooming and, you know, virtual school, I mean, could we have done that five years ago? So what about the positives? What about the upsides? You know, I'm so glad that you asked that, Leah, because I give grand rounds and lectures on this a lot. Uh, as you know, I'm the ex-chair uh, of the Council on Communications and Media, uh, succeeded right now by, by by my very good friend and longtime colleague, Dr. Nushi and Amin Uh, But uh, I still go around and talk on this. And one of the things that we have always tried to emphasize in the council, or at least as long as I've been there, is that there are so many positives. Uh, social media, electronic media in general, are a tool. They are an incredibly powerful tool. And like every incredibly powerful tool, it depends what you use them for. They can be very negative. You mentioned cyberbullying. You mentioned uh, sexting, which is in and of itself a mixed bag. But I think people think about it as a tool example for uh, sexual predation. And uh, there are there's actually a study today that looked at correlations between increased social media use and teen suicidality. So there are certainly concerns that people have, and those concerns are not invalid. But I, I think because those negatives are so prominent in our minds that we forget how utterly positive they can be. And right now during the pandemic, my favorite example is based on the work of one of the people who really started as a chicken little of social media and child well-being, uh, Dr. Jean Twenge, who's a PhD researcher, a psychologist in this field. And Dr. Twenge wrote a book in 2017 suggesting that cell phones had literally ruined a generation of kids. That was that was like in the in in the all the publicity she did. A generation has been destroyed by these cell phones. Well, interestingly, earlier in the pandemic uh, last year, Dr. Twenge repeated some of her research looking at teen well-being and social media use. And she came back and she said, actually, uh, the news is pretty good. And this is from somebody who'd taken a really negative approach for a very long time. She said, you know what? We're not finding, at least in our research, that the social media is responsible for teen mental health problems. I think we all feel like we're seeing an increase in mental health issues in kids associated with the pandemic. But in many cases, the media was actually protective. Uh, she found that electronic media use had not gone up substantially in most cases. Obviously, the schoolwork 
but but the entertainment use had not really gone up. That in families that were spending more time together, teens were very well protected. That the ability of teens to reach out and uh, you know spend time online with friends and family members was protective for them. So I think right now this is absolutely a very mixed bag. We just had a, a chance to interview one of the leading researchers in this field, Dr. Michelle Ibarra, who has done wonderful work using text messaging programs to encourage healthy sexual behaviors uh, in uh, teens who uh, consider themselves sexual minorities, specifically uh, uh, lesbian, gay, bisexual plus uh, girls was her most recent study and found really significant improvements in healthy sexual behaviors, decrease in unwanted pregnancies. Uh, and so we have these tools at our disposal and really need to think when we're talking about media, the question is not really how much are you using until it impinges on you know, sleep, eating, exercise, family relations, but more, what are you doing? And really coming at each child individually and saying, how can we use the positives and maybe cut down on the negatives? That is such a great summary. And I mean, again, I think it is a little bit of a relief to hear that, that, you know, that there may be some protection. I like that. I was listened to a YouTube video um, by Bessel van der Kolk, who has done a lot of research on trauma and wrote the book, The Body Keeps the Score. And at the very beginning of the pandemic last year in March, he put out this like 20 minute YouTube video about self-care. And mm -hmm. there were seven things that you could do. You could make sure you're sleeping, make sure you're eating well, that you're getting movement and then family and social connectiveness. And, you know, during this pandemic, I mean, I don't know what I would have done without that. Oh, yeah. you know? And, and, you know, zoom parties. I mean, I had a great new year's Eve party. We did it on zoom in our pajamas with our friends and you know, it helped us have a little bit of normalcy. So, um, yeah, yeah. You know, that is, that is such a great example. I've both had a chance, you know, this really opened up my eyes about who I can consider a friend that I can keep in touch with. And it was people that I could, you know, go sit at their houses or have them over to the house or go out to dinner. And now I'm realizing every friend I've made throughout the history of my life as somebody I could have a, have a Zoom happy hour with. And I've had a chance to do that. The other thing that's really helped us is uh, early on in the pandemic, uh, I've written a couple of books about divorce and separation and and fatherhood. And uh, we used this opportunity to get back together with my ex-wife, my co-parents' family in extended family Zoom meetings every single week to check in on each other. Her dad is a, uh, is a prominent researcher in public health uh, sort of policymaker. And so he had some information for us that we could use to stay safe. And uh, we we're also just checking how's everybody doing and getting together as an extended family, you know, even across the, the divide of separation and divorce was really special. And I, I missed uh, my former, my former in-laws, you know, my former, you know, sister and brother-in-law, their kids, great chance to catch up with them. And, you know, all the kids could see each other. So, yeah, there was an opportunity to really use these media to bond in ways that we weren't doing without this. Right. It's one of the interesting things about doing this podcast. There is a theme that transcends every podcast, and that is relatedness. 
and connection. And, you know, when I think when we're talking about children's emotional and behavioral health, um, about our own health, it's about connection to other people. I mean, we are just social creatures. And, you know, as you mentioned, this social media is really a tool to do that. And if we didn't have that, I don't know what this pandemic would look like. I mean, I adore my family and I'm so grateful that I like the people I live with. But, you know, sometimes we're all getting a little sick of each other. So being able to reach out to people and, you know, for me doing a podcast during a pandemic, I mean, this is this is a fun thing for me. Well, we did talk and touch on a little bit about the things that keep us up at night, the scary things. Are there some things that we can help parents with about the negative stuff, the um, I think the intensive gaming that might be going on? or the sexting, or the cyberbullying. I I think, you know, we worry about, is there a connection to suicide when kids have been bullied um, on social media? So what about the negative piece? So when we look at the overall relationship across large populations of screen media use and child well-being, the best study that was ever done on that demonstrated essentially a correlation coefficient of zero or 0.01. It was nothing. But that doesn't mean that there are not individual kids who are impacted very negatively in certain ways by their use of electronic and social media. So you had mentioned uh, cyberbullying. That is a very real concern. Rates of cyberbullying vary from 10% to 40% of kids who are online because the definitions of each study uh, tend to vary rather dramatically. But cyberbullying looks in many ways like uh, face-to-face bullying. Uh, There are some differences, however. For example, the role of the victim and the bully tend to interchange. Of course, it can come into your home. It can follow you everywhere. It can go viral. In some cases, you can have an inter an, an interplay where in-person bullying is filmed and then goes viral. So there are some real concerns. I tell parents and practitioners, you know, you're looking for those same signs. A child whose mood suddenly changes. They don't want to do things they used to want to do. Maybe they used to spend a lot of time online and now they don't want to turn their computer on. Why is that? Are their grades falling? Are there activities that they're avoiding? Friendships that they're abandoning? And then you really want to ask questions. Hey, what? What's going on? You know, I noticed this change. Is somebody making you feel bad? The same screening questions we use uh, for in-person bullying. You know, who's making you feel bad? Is somebody making you feel scared? Is somebody asking you to do something you don't want to do? You know, and start with an open-ended question and see where it goes. We encourage parents to have these conversations the same way that the conversations about healthy sexuality and substances start very early in age-appropriate ways, so do these conversations about uh, safe and healthy use of electronic media. I remember when my daughter was six or seven, she was on a, a platform that still exists run by Disney called Club Penguin. And you had your little penguin avatar, you ran around, you interacted with other penguins. And in theory, The idea behind Club Penguin was that it was going to be the safe space for kids. It's Disney, but Club Penguin did some things that made it hard for that to be a safe space. For one thing, you could buy up. And so you look at social hierarchies, the inequities that, you know, really make some kids feel very bad about themselves. 
it was right there online. You could buy a new costume, you know, you could buy a, a special experience. And so these kids were extremely attuned to these signs of wealth, even online, could tell which penguins had the money to buy a new hat or a piece of jewelry and who didn't. And we, I actually watched my daughter. This is why the co-viewing is so important, especially in young kids, sit down say, hey, show me what you're doing. Show me what's going on here. Explain this. I have to do this today with TikTok with my kids. I was, I was literally two nights ago sitting at the dinner table and being like, look, I see the same three people in the same five songs every time I turn on TikTok. Is there a way? I know there's more out there. I know it's not just this happy Kelly girl doing the dance where her hands go up and down, but why is that all I see? And they're like, well, dad, you clearly watched it. And so that's what it's, you know, um, and she showed me, she said, look, these penguins are bullying these other penguins. And I was like, oh my gosh, look, that one is sitting alone and being sad. Cause the other one, I golly gee, how on this site where you can barely say anything that's not from a drop down list are young children figuring out how to bully each other. So it's just so important to involve yourself and kids love to explain things to us and golly knows in this environment, we need them to, I don't understand how the video games work. I don't understand why my youngest son got over a million hits on a TikTok video that looked completely random to me and included a reference to a social group uh, that uh, I like, what is that? I didn't even know what this is. E-boys is like, oh, well, I made this video making fun of e-boys, but then people didn't get the irony. They thought I was saying I was an e-boy. And I'm like, wait, 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 back up. <laughs> like an e-boy? <laughs> which character in The Breakfast Club <laughs> does this relate to? Because like there's the nerd, there's the What's an e-boy? I don't even know. I don't know. What is that? So, you know, but when we sit down and we ask them to explain things to us and show things to us, usually they're very eager to. And that gives us a window into what they're doing and why. And then we can bring our adult heads in and say, oh, you know, how does that make you feel when that happens? Or do you think that you were as kind as you could have been in that situation? And they're the same conversations we have about the real life world, but we have to have them about that world. And we have to, you know, just like we say, if, if a stranger comes up and says, get in his van so that you can help him find his lost dog, don't go in the van, right? Uh, we have to say that about the online world. Remember that if you don't know this person in real life, you don't know who they are online. And if somebody tells you to take off your clothes and take a picture and send it to them, that's a bad idea. Don't do that. And if they tell you that you're going to get in trouble if you don't, which is how, and in terms of sexual predation online, it's, it's a fairly rare problem, but of course it's a problem that gets our attention. It's horrible every time it happens. But one of the things that they will do is sort of lure kids in with, with minor infractions and then say, oh, well, if you don't do the next thing, I'm going to turn you in. You're going to be in trouble. And they play on that guilt, the victim's guilt for having been victimized and ladder it up from there. And so we want to remind our kids, look, you're not going to get in trouble if you ever come to me and tell me somebody's made you uncomfortable or you did something that you were unsure about. Let me know. That's okay. You will not be in trouble. You are not going to be arrested for that. Uh, you know, you need to come to me if somebody's making you feel uncomfortable. And so it's a, it's the same conversations we have in the real world, but we have to remember that this is now the real world. This this line that separates the the electronic world and the real world is is a very fuzzy 
fuzzy line, and sometimes it's just not there at all. Well, and I think particularly when the kids are the digital natives, and certainly for me, you know, I'm not a native. (laughs) So much of the time I'm like, God, I feel like such a dope, you know, and my kids never played video games. They're in their thirties and I had two girls and it just, one time we won an Xbox or PlayStation and we didn't know what to do with it. So it just sat, <laughs> it just sat on a shelf. So, uh, you know, um, and, and $500 I, doorstop for free. Right. Right. So it was somewhere and then it was outdated. Right. But, uh, yeah, I was thinking about what you were talking, this whole business of asking kids to help. I remember talking to a kid about, I don't know, we were, he's a diabetic and we were trying to find some drinks that he could take because he was drinking tons of lemonade. And so I said, well, let's Google some stuff. So I think I'm being super smart and I'm, he he grabs the computer and says, here, let me do that. (laughs) Yes. You know, so he, and it was great. You know, he said, well, here, this one would be okay. And I said, okay, that sounds good to me. And that's, that's a beautiful example because it's that opportunity to reinforce self-efficacy. That's what we want to do. We want to put our kids in charge of their own well-being, and, and that's a great place for them to take the lead. And then we're just like, guiding a little bit from the side and they're running with it, which is, you know, ideal. Well, and the idea that they could help us, you know, that we're asking for help. I mean, Mm -hmm. that would certainly empower a kid. So I know with a lot of kids, I I hear parents come in and oftentimes it's a boy and not to stereotype, but, um, you know, and they're like, you know, this kid's on gaming for six hours and, Every time I try and do something, he freaks out and I don't know what to do. And, you know, during the appointment, the kid's on his phone the whole time and, Mm -hmm. you know, the kid's angry and they don't know what to do about that. In my head, I'm thinking, gee, you're paying for this. This is in your wheelhouse of having some locus of control. But I'm not sure I've given great advice about, I don't know, when I hear a kid that's on you know, gaming for eight hours in the middle of the summer, that worries me. So what about gaming disorders? Is that a real thing? It it is. And when we say real, you got to ask who's defining real. Specifically, the World Health Organization has named problematic internet use, PIU, and internet gaming disorder, IGD, as two codable diagnoses. So if you go to the ICD-10, you can code these diagnoses. In the United States, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual 5, which tells us what is a uh, psychiatric diagnosis, has said these are problems of interest that deserve a little bit more investigation. So if you go to find a DSM-5 code, you can't, but they will almost certainly be ruled in in the next uh, revision of the DSM uh, and become a codable diagnosis there as well. The important thing for us is that there are criteria for these diagnoses. The best estimates are somewhere just shy of 10% of kids are affected, you know, 8%, 11%, depending on whom you're reading. Uh, My friend and colleague, Dr. Megan Moreno, uh, does a lot of work with this, a lot of leadership. There are some screening tools, and I don't have my slide up in front of me, but if you look up problematic internet use and internet gaming disorder, there are some very well-validated instruments that may even be available within your electronic health record that you can use. And uh, they're defined in the same way we define every other compulsive use disorder. Because if you look at compulsive behaviors, ultimately the final common pathway is dopamine, right? Whatever gives you your dopamine, 
mean, whether it's cigarettes or drugs or unsafe sex or gambling, uh, ultimately it comes down to that. And the definitions are that it is crowding out other healthier activities, interfering with sleep, exercise, relationships, schoolwork that attempts to stop it have gone poorly and even led to withdrawal symptoms. Uh, and so these instruments you can use quickly in your office to identify these disorders. When you find them, uh, the usually your treatment is the same as it is for every other mental health issue that you find, which is starting usually with uh, therapy. And, uh, you know, some psychologists specialize in these issues. You can spend huge amounts of money sending kids out into the woods uh, to do rehab for this. It's not clear that those therapies are evidence-based. So, you know, if a family wants to engage in that, I can't say no. It's probably great for their kids to be out in the woods for a month. Uh, but is it any better than cognitive behavioral therapy once a week? Nobody I, that I'm aware of has shown that. Uh, but yeah, this is this is a thing to screen for. And again, be thinking about it anytime the presenting complaint is anxiety, depression, poor school performance. Uh, one of the things that I really harp on in my talks, because this is where the data leads us, uh, is sleep. Sleep is the Rosetta Stone of so much of what we're worried about academically, behaviorally. Uh, when somebody would come into my office and say, hey, my kids, you know, I think my kid needs medicine for ADHD. Their, their school performance is falling off. They're not paying attention. Their, their behavior is not okay. If, if I haven't asked about sleep, and, and very specifically and deliberately, not just what time is bedtime for you, but what time do you go to bed? What time do you go to sleep? That second question is so important uh, because you'll find there's a three or four hour gap sometimes. Oh, you go to bed at 930. Great. Let's move on. You go to bed at 930. You go to sleep at two. What are you doing in between? And the screens are incredibly compelling. My, my wife actually is making fun of me because I've discovered TikTok, which feeds you this incredibly compelling short burst dopamine uh, you know, every few minutes, she's like, are you going to sleep? Or are you going to watch another TikTok? It's very hard to turn the TikTok off and go to sleep. And, and I'm a 52 year old adult, uh, with, with fairly good, you know, self-efficacy skills. And so asking a nine-year-old to do that, you can't, right? So, uh, that's the real place to start looking is sleep and then try to figure out what the kids' needs are. Yeah, I think sleep is a huge indicator of function. And I think a lot of what you just said about internet gaming or problem use is function. And I think that's true for a lot of mental health things is, you know, um, yeah, I like to, for me, I like to make sure the dishes in my dishwasher are loaded perfectly. Do I have OCD? <laughs> yeah, no, it doesn't really interfere with my day, but gosh, I like it. Um, you know, yes. so is this behavior affecting friendships, all those those connectedness things that you talk about? I did do a podcast with a sleep specialist, Dr. Hovig Artinian, who was a riot. He, huh. um, he actually went into medicine because um, teaching eighth grade science was too hard. <laughs> so he said, I want to be a doctor. I'm like, okay. But he talked a lot about sleep and, you know, that medication is not, it, it's, it's the behavior behaviors of sleep. And of course, you know, being on yes. your phone, he, he spent a lot of time talking about that. Well, I, I feel like you've really covered a lot of great information. So at the end of the day, when I've got a parent sitting in front of me, 
what are what are the tools that I can give the parents about resources for them? Right. So starting a conversation with your child about what is this for, how are we using it, uh, and what are we going to do with it? I, I get media queries every Christmas season, like what should we tell parents about getting a cell phone or a tablet or a gaming console for the kids? And my answer is always the same, which is have the conversation before the box gets opened. Talk about what is this, how are we going to use it, what are the ground rules? Now, the Academy and my colleagues on the Council of Communications and Media have come up with with a great tool for facilitating that conversation, which is the Family Media Use Plan tool, which you can easily find at healthychildren.org in English and in Spanish. And uh, this is a framework. We, we can't, we, this is almost a, a by the way kind of thing because we kept getting this complaint. Well, we hear your recommendations. This is when we came out with the last recommendations in 2016, but how are we going to? make these work? How am I going to do this in my own family? And in fact, uh, one of my last pieces for National Public Radio to bring this full circle was a commentary on how, as a pediatrician, I could not follow the AAP's media guidelines with my own kids. <laughs> uh, I, I got a uh, an email from one of my future colleagues, Dr. Victor Strasberger, who said, hey, I'm with the AAP. I heard your commentary. You know, we should talk. Uh, and I did yeah, not know I thought know I would them. never buy my kids Pop-Tarts. Yeah, right. And yet, mm, that icing, it's just mm, the sparkles, right? Uh, and so we created this tool to sort of answer that question. Well, what am I going to do? So the tool's got two pieces. One is to come up with a schedule because no screens under two and only two hours a day fell apart. Yeah, there's just no way for anybody to do that. And in the and now it's it's insane. So one is a, just a slider tool that allows you to figure out for each kid in your family how are they going to spend their time. And that's a conversation about, well, how long do you need for your homework? How long do you need for soccer practice? Are we going to eat dinner together as a family, right? And that allows families to find their own appropriate solutions to time use. And then the second piece of it is just a simple document that says, okay, here's our rule. So will there be screens at the dinner table or not? Will there be screens in the bedroom or not? Can you, you know, text while we're driving or not, right? They could fill that out, refer to it and and also talk about what the consequences are going to be for diversion from those rules. And when you engage kids in a conversation, now you're talking. That doesn't mean that as the adult, you don't have the final say, but it's so much better to have a collaborative discussion than it is to say, okay, my house, my rules, here's what's going to happen. Top down, don't speak. So this tool is one great way to facilitate that conversation. Now, asterisk, we wanted to use this tool as a, as a research uh, instrument as well. And the first studies regarding the tool are coming out and they were a, a little discouraging, but you got to look at your endpoint. The question was, do families that have used this tool see a reduction in overall screen time use among their teenage kids? The answer was in short, no, they didn't. But I think that that doesn't really capture the subtlety of what this is for. It's not necessarily to reduce the number of hours. It may be to improve the nature of the use. And so I don't think that just because that one study didn't show a reduced number of hours, that it's a failure. It's also a living document and something that I know the council's working on, constantly revising and improving. So keep your eye on it. But it is one great way to start. Well, and I think that circles back to what you said at the very beginning is it's about how you use it. So if that plan, and when I was looking through it, 
you know, there were all those prompts about, well, what about, like you mentioned, what about at dinner? The other thing that I thought was really important is parents modeling their own behavior and how critical it is to be present with your kids. And if you're, you know, our brains really can't do two things at once. If I'm on my phone, I'm really not listening to you that great, which my husband will comment on like, hello, (laughs) did you catch that? I'm like, oh, I was just texting someone, you know, like that would excuse why I'm not listening to you. (laughs) But, you know, that parents need to model. I mean, if we're busy, you know, texting our way through dinner. Is that a good thing? Is that what we want? And then turn around and tell your kids not to. Exactly. Yeah, dude, you, you have to set that example. You have to model my favorite, my favorite, maybe my favorite study ever in our peer-reviewed journal pediatrics was written by a good friend and colleague, Dr. Jenny Radeski. And it was before she joined the council uh, executive committee, before I ever met her. But it's the only study I've read where I, I literally laughed out loud. And Dr. Radeski sent researchers into a fast food restaurant with two arches that are generally yellow to uh, <laughs> record <laughs> interactions between parents and their children and scale the behaviors uh, when parents were involved in their own mobile devices. And predictably, uh, the behaviors were worse the more absorbed the parents were in their own devices. Uh, But it had not been quantitated in the past. And so the study actually did add a ton to what we know in the literature. But when you read these dry academic descriptions of, you know, parents kicking their children under the table to get them to be quiet and leave them alone, it's also like we've all been there. And it is, frankly, just hilarious. Well, this has been really great information, and I so appreciate all these tips, and I'm going to try and capture some of the studies that you've talked about so I can put that in our show notes, because I think they're really, especially this one by Dr. Radeski um, at the Arches. I'd like to read that. That sounds like that sounds (laughs) like I'll send you links when we're done. Perfect. So my final question that I ask all my guests, and it is so much fun to ask, is if you could go back and talk to yourself as your younger resident you, what advice would you give yourself? Oh, my gosh. You know what I wish I had had in residency uh, was a practice of mindfulness. I so wish that I had had that because there are so many times that I got so upset and so caught up in whether I'd done something right or wrong, were people angry with me, were they happy with me, the times that I got absolutely crushed by outcomes. Anybody who practices pediatrics knows that for most of us, we have very, very few tragic outcomes, but I think we remember every one of them that we've ever seen. And I wish that I had understood how to meditate, how to find quiet within myself, how to put context around conflict. And gosh, I just wish I'd had that. I think I would have been so much more effective as a resident, so much better at dealing with the emotional upheaval that came with that experience. I, Golly, I wish I'd had that. And secondly, I wish that I had been slower to speak and been better at listening for longer. Well, those are things that I think can apply now. And actually, I'm 
doing a habit tracker. And the one habit tracker thing that I'm trying to do is practice meditation. And every time I do it, I feel better. But gosh, some days I'm like, gee, I don't have eight minutes. Well, maybe I do. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, just that learning to take some breaths. And it's a really great thing to be able to teach kids in your office. I mean, you can, you can teach a kid how to, you know, take belly breaths and yeah, that that's great. Well, listen, um, thank you so much for your time. This has been really fun. And perhaps you missed your calling as a, an actor and comedian, <laughs> um, you know, and that uh, pediatrics is just your second gig here. <laughs> oh, well, well, we'll see about that. I have to say that this has been a spectacular outlet for things that I do enjoy, which which are communicating, storytelling, and uh, really just listening to people who are smarter than I am. It's the greatest privilege of my life, both in this job and within the academy, to have proximity to people like yourself of enormous talent and incredible experience and get to just listen and learn. That is among the greatest privileges I can imagine. Absolutely. I think the storytelling piece, and you know, for me, I I would echo what you said. This has just been so much fun to, you know, get to pick people's brains and just, you know, have a few minutes of their time. And so, well, thank you so much. And I hope you have a great day. And, um, you know, to all the listeners out there, tune in to Pediatrics on Call and uh, you'll get to hear more of David and the humor he brings to radio, so or podcasting. <laughs> thank so you. It's so all much. the same thing in my mind. <laughs> thank you so much, Lee. I really appreciate your time and and you're having me on today. It's been great. Well, take care. Thank you. Oh my gosh, so much fun! Thank you, Dr. David Hill. That was awesome. So I took away a lot of helpful information. Some of it actually made me more reassured about internet and social media use. I think a really powerful thing he said is that social media can be a powerful tool and in fact can be utterly positive. I think we have really seen that demonstrated during COVID with kids' ability to be able to reach out to their friends, for us to Zoom with family members, and then, of course, the whole Zoom ability to attend conferences, and that maybe this connection through electronic means is really good for us in some cases. So, When does it become a concern? Well, anytime that there's something that impacts function, we may want to have our radar. So if we're talking about serious things like internet gaming disorder or IGD or problem internet use, PIU, as described by the World Health Organization, these are changes in behavior and extended use of internet gaming where function is affected There may be withdrawal symptoms, changes in mood, avoidance, grade slipping. And in those cases, we really need to take heed and seek care because these are, you you know, um, behavior disorders. And so something like cognitive behavioral therapy might be helpful. On the other hand, other negative behaviors that we worry a lot about, like sexting and sexual predators online, it's real 
And individually, it can be horrifying for kids. But on the grand scheme, it's not as prevalent as perhaps we've thought about. Cyberbullying can affect anywhere from 10 to 40% of kids. And for parents talking to their kids about cyberbullying, we need to think about it like we would in-person bullying, but recognize that social media can then amplify it and we need to be able to talk with our kids about how to manage that. So what's a parent to do as far as safe and effective and positive use of internet and social media? Dr. Hill talked about having a conversation in the family. How are we going to use this? And actually, what's our schedule going to look like? How are we going to spend time? Are you going to have time for homework? What are the rules of our family? Are we going to have our phones on during dinner? And then what are the consequences if we don't follow through with the rules? And really engage our kids in that conversation. The AAP has a family media use plan that you can find on healthychildren.org that we can share with parents that will actually help them put together a plan for their own family. Dr. Hill talked about some follow-up studies, and if they were looking at did this tool decrease the use of the internet or social media, it didn't really show that. However, what might be changing is how those tools are being used. So you know, keep that in mind, and that might be something that is really helpful. The other thing parents can do is co-watch with their kids or co-play if you're doing internet gaming, and ask the kids to show us how to use these tools. It empowers them, and you know, we might really learn something. It's important that parents recognize that our advice and our oversight is still important, and that we need to guide kids just like we would about drugs, sex, all those sometimes difficult conversations that we can offer our guidance about what's safe and what's not. We should look at how the internet use and social media is affecting sleep. If it's keeping kids up all night or keeping us up all night, it's not a great thing. And then finally, parents really need to model safe, effective and positive use of social media and how much time we're spending on our phones. Are we really listening to our kids? Because at the end of the day, we want to foster relationships and we need to hear and listen to our kids. Thank you so, so much for spending some time again with me today. I hope this was helpful. I had a blast. It was so much fun. I hope that you have a great day. Be proud of the work that you do. It's really, really important. I can't think of anything that matters more than taking care of kids. Be well, take care, and be safe. And see you next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pediatric Meltdown. In the words of Maya Angelou, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. Let's do better together. This podcast was made possible by the team at Streamlined Podcasts. Music was composed by Connor McHugh and cover art was designed by Alexia Barrero.